Hey. Hi, my name is Leah Duhon. Uh, I'm here with Richard Diaz and the Natural Running Network podcast. Today we're doing a Q&A to answer any and all questions you have in regards to running and racing. Yeah, and we have a list. We have quite a list of questions. And I appreciate those that have taken the time to send us those questions. And before we even get started, I'd like to give a shout out to Venga Endurance. CBD company, the premier CBD com company on the planet. Um, one of the only companies that is water-based and to use the product myself, have for a long time, uh, have enjoyed a relationship with these guys for quite a while. Uh, shout out to Jay O'Hare, who is the principal of the company. And he's provided us with some giveaways and they've got a new product out that is essentially a sleep aid which I am dying to get my hands on because I sleep like crap. Hey, me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Leah, I believe you have questions. I have questions. Let me pull them up for you. Us. All right. For us. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, so do you want me to just read the whole question, Tria? Yeah, you know, and I want you to pick them as you like them, okay? So. Okay. All right, we'll just start with this one from uh, Alex Stevens. Uh, his first question is, what are the heart rate zones we should test for if a runner wants to start implementing flow training? Ah, good question. Um, I have visual aids that I intend to use but because there's a lot of questions that are kind of interrelated with this question, I think I'm gonna save that for a little bit further down the road. But in flow training, and for those that don't know what that is, it's a concept of training that I kind of uh, introduced in my book, Training the Dark Side. And uh, again, a lot of what we're gonna talk about is gonna have much to do with some of the questions that were asked. And uh, so, to be very pointed with the question, the first thing we need to know is what your metabolic turn point is. And this essentially is the shift away from preferentially or, uh, I don't want to say preferentially because you don't get a chance to prefer it, um, but more dominantly being in your fat stores versus being in your sugar stores, carbohydrate stores. So this turn point, a lot of people want to refer to this as a threshold. And even that um, term gets gets a little kinky if you're if you're not really well aware of what we're talking about but essentially the point where your body is going into the sugar stores almost exclusively versus uh, more into your fat stores once you know that then flowing in and out of the energy from dominantly being aerobic versus dominantly being anaerobic is where this whole flow process starts to take hold so um, and I'm going to be a little careful where I go with this question because, again, it's going to come back up. He had something else tied to that question, did he not? <clears throat> yeah, he had a couple more questions. Uh, he said, what types of workouts are you a fan of for programming weekly, sprints, hill sessions, threshold, the long run? And then he also asked what your plans are for Nashville. <laughs> okay, so the, 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 again, these questions are going to start to interact. And so the question of workouts, hill training, when that happens, sprint training, long distance running, you know, speed workouts, whatever. Um, 
the concept of flow is to integrate all these processes. And there is periodization associated with the work in where um, we are going to look at what the, what the task is. So for example, if you're preparing for a much longer event, then we're gonna be more dominantly involved in our aerobic conditioning. Uh, and by the way, this question will come up later and I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But uh, for example, a high rocks event. In a high rocks event, it's a shorter distance event. We're not gonna run out of energy. So that's not a concern. It's a function of fatigue. And so we wanna build on the resistance to fatigue. And so the, the intensity of the workouts are gonna be greater across the board. And the percentage of uh, aerobic conditioning is gonna be far less. So again, I'm, I'm gonna get back to this in a little bit, but um, that's kind of leading you towards uh, the global answers I'm gonna have during this podcast. So the final question, which I really appreciated was, uh, what's my plans for Nashville? I wish I had a clean answer for that. I mean, there are so many moving parts as to whether or not we're gonna actually move to Nashville or the surrounding area. Actually, the areas we're looking at are Franklin, Brentwood, places like that. Um, trying to get out of California. Um, you know, Leah and her husband just closing on a, on a home in California. You know, we should have sold you mine, you know, because I'm getting, if I, if I get the money I want from my house, then I'm out. Um, but again, there's a lot of moving parts. I, I hope it's gonna come together, but uh, time will tell. But when, I, but when I do get there, when I do get there, I know you live in the Nashville area, so I expect to see you at the new and improved Secret Lab. Nice. So basically, just to go back on his uh, questions again, so what are the heart rate zones we should test for? So the main things you want to know, like you talked about, is like that kind of aerobic threshold in a sense, and then kind of that anaerobic threshold of when you switch to sugar, right? Those are kind of the All two right, things so, you want to know. Uh, you know, th this is the elephant in the room. People toss this term threshold around a lot. Now, you have to appreciate that I've made my living for the past 25 years doing diagnostics on athletes. I've tested thousands of athletes clinically. And essentially, a VO2 max test is a direct gas analysis. And so think of it like a smog check. We're measuring flow. We're measuring the flow of oxygen coming in, airflow and oxygen availability coming into the body. And the byproduct of work, which is carbon dioxide leaving the body. So these two gases as they're being exchanged. Now, the reason I go this deep into the conversation is because anaerobic threshold suggests that you are now leading more heavily into anaerobic metabolism. So meaning you're using more sugar for energy. And the problem in that, where, where an endurance athlete is concerned, is that there's a limiting amount of availability of sugar on the body, depending on how well you've fed and the way you've trained and your training. I mean, really, there's a lot to do with your training involved in this process. But the average person is not going to be able to store more than about a couple thousand calories from carbohydrate. And if you're going hard into your carbohydrate, and depending how big you are, uh, mass matters. So if you're a bigger guy, you burn more calories per hour. If the intensity is greater, you're going to burn more calories per hour. So let's say hypothetically in an event where you're burning a thousand calories an hour, uh, but you can store two, 
if the event's only an hour long, in the case of Hunter McIntyre, who's you know the leading guy in High Rocks right now, he's I, I've tested him six times. Uh, he uh, he at high intensity effort, he can burn like fifteen hundred calories an hour, but from a standpoint of fuel availability, he's got it. The downside is that when you burn sugar or carbohydrate, the outcome is you produce lactate. So the more sugar you burn, the more lactate you produce. The more lactate you produce and inability to clear it from the working muscle, then you got yourself a problem because um, the work becomes untenable. You'll just get toxic and you can't continue until you slow down and eventually clear some of that lactate from the working muscles. So that's what we're talking about when we're, we're talking about fatigue. So in a high rocks event, the issue is fatigue. In an endurance event, the, the issue is more endurance or, or energy availability. Can you get access to more energy? And so, again, it's a long process, but I got off point a little bit, but here's what I was trying to suggest, is that clinically, anaerobic threshold is determined by uh, what's referred to as a V-slope. And so it's got to do with a ventilatory consequence of work and the point where the carbon dioxide production begins to uh, exceed the rate in which oxygen is being taken in. So it doesn't necessarily mean that now you're way over your oxygen uptake. What it means is the, the rate in which the production of carbon dioxide is going off is greater than your, than your oxygen uptake. So the point being is that you could actually still be really aerobic and have reached clinical anaerobic threshold. And so that gets confusing. And then the other consequence that I like to look at is when you meet what's re referred to as a respiratory exchange ratio of one. And that means that you're basically at an impasse. You're producing as much CO2 as your O2, and now you're 100% into your sugar stores. So to me, that would be a metabolic turn point. You're, you're starting to really go off now. And anything beyond that really becomes untenable, becomes toxic for most people. Some people live pretty pretty nicely in it, but so this is why I don't like to use the term anaerobic threshold or or threshold at all because it confuses people, and they they use the term, you know, based on recommendations or suggestions from somebody that might not quite understand what it is they're really talking about, and so metabolic turn point is to me a more precise uh, way to depict what's what's occurring. You're getting away from your fat, you're getting into your sugar harder. And so the consequence of work is becoming a little bit um, more involved, more intense, okay? So um, after all, all of that said, what I'm suggesting to you is the most important component of your training paradigm would be understanding where that shift occurs. Because you could be 10 beats above that mark and be okay, and actually have the sensation of being fine. But you're turning over a lot of sugar. 15 beats, maybe still okay, but getting a little bit more expensive. 20 beats, now it's starting to get a little ugly, maybe not sustainable. But all of those points in the road are still anaerobic because they're dominantly into the sugar stores. And so mm -hmm. getting below the threshold, you get right up against it, and you know, you could be feeling okay, feeling almost way too conservative, 
And anything below that might feel stupid. It's just way too easy because you tend to spend more time above that metabolic turn point. Some, you know, there's like this little spot where you're comfortable when you do your runs and you do it all the time at that one spot. Um, so um, at the end of the day, I, I'm, I'm babbling now, but what I'm, what I'm trying to suggest to you is that first identify what that metabolic turn point is and then start looking in terms of how much above or below you're gonna be with your training and in the flow cycles, which I, by the way, I'm gonna depict this with a graph in a little bit. And I think one of the things that I found most important, I went to Coach Diaz's clinic uh, about a month ago, and one thing that really stuck out to me about that flow training is that just since you're anaerobic doesn't mean, like he just said, that you feel like you're going super hard. And I think for me, I kind of just assumed like, oh, if I'm anaerobic, that means I'm like dying. And it's like, no, that's not exactly what it means. And how with that flow training, you might be peaking 10 beats above and then going back down. Then 15 feels a lot different than 10 and then back down. And then maybe 20, that feels way different than 10 and then back down kind of thing. So the flow might not always be the same exact thing every single time. It's peaking for a little bit and then kind of slowing down and all that. So I don't know yeah, if yeah. that helps. The other, but The other consideration since you, I think we should just do this. Let's, let's do this, okay. All right, so uh, this is basically taken straight from my book. And um, the, the question about hill training and whatever is gonna show up in a, a minute. Now, uh, for those that are looking at this, this little graph on the right-hand side is basically showing you what I spoke of. And you can see the detail on the top, it talks about male versus female, but basically uh, using like, uh, and, you know, I'm gonna give credit to Maffetone for this because it was his thing, 180 subtract your age. I found this to be conservatively aerobic. Okay, and so, and then where I found a difference was with females, when they go anaerobic, they tend to be about 15 beats more capable than, than men. And huh. I think it's got to do with their, the, just the size of women versus men in common. So what you do is you'd like, for example, you take your age, you subtract it from 180, whatever that number comes up is basically your, your threshold, if I have to call it something. And so you can see this little white line in the middle here that's going across the, the graph. And then below that line, 150, 145, 140, 120, these are basically all aerobic functions. And then you can see how the I, I color-coded it so it's starting to get a little yellow and then getting a little orange and eventually getting red. So this is going greater and greater and greater into intensity, which by the way, all of which is anaerobic. Now, if you look at this little flow chart, you can see where it says start. And what I've invested here is basically the icons represent the work you're doing. So the orange icon right here is representing 10 minutes of aerobic effort. And it's, by the way, the smaller icon indicates less effort. So, uh, for example, this first icon is probably about 145 beats per minute. And then for about 10 minutes, you hang out there and what do you do? You hit a hill. And guess what? When you climb hills, you go anaerobic. And this is big, a bigger icon versus a smaller icon. So this is like taking you up to about 160, 165 beats per minute. And you're going to spend about three minutes there. And then you come down the backside of the hill. You're about 10 minutes into the to the aerobic metabolism. You're basically recovering. And then there's a bigger, higher intensity workout. I'm looking at like a five-minute effort. And this is like way into some intensity here. 
So we're looking at about 170, even up to about 175 beats per minute. And then this blue icon is what I call uh, active recovery and coming all the way back down to about 120 beats per minute. And there's no timeline on it. It's a function of when you get to 120, you've, you've recovered. Your heart rate being lower is what's you know, indicating that you've recovered. And then you're starting to go back into aerobic metabolism, so you're popping it back up to about 145 again. And then you're right back into that high intensity hill, recovering again. And then five minutes at a, a lower intensity anaerobic workout, and then there's a much lower aerobic recovery and then back into that hill and then back into a five minute aerobic recovery and back into a five minute hill. And so what's, this, what's interesting about this and what's different as opposed to most other paradigms, training pro paradigms, is that when you look at the math here up on the left hand side, 66% of the work done was in fact aerobic. So the dominant influence from the energy system was aerobic. And 30% or 33% of it was anaerobic. Now, the question's gonna come up about polarized training and what have you, and 80-20. I've, I've evolved from that process. I'm looking at this as we can touch all these bases because I promise you that when you get into this hill, this high intensity hill, this is really gonna tax your myocardium. This is gonna go right after your heart. And this is where your fitness lives. These high intensity efforts are going to improve your fitness. These lower intensity efforts are gonna improve your endurance. But if the focus of, of your training is to improve your capacity to run, for example, up a 13 mile hill or a 13 mile beast race, all of this provides everything you need. You're gonna get the endurance you need, you're gonna maintain your fitness and develop your fitness. And progressively over the course of the week, month, what have you, you're gonna to start to notice that you're not gonna be segregating your workouts and you're gonna get the same benefit, if not even greater benefit, any given workout. Yeah, and then just to add in, one thing I'm that really stuck out to me when you were describing this in the past was that this is gonna look different for different types of athletes. Like some people, like me, who's done a lot of high intensity, my high intensity five minutes, it might last five minutes and it might be really hard. But for someone who's mostly done aerobic stuff throughout their life, it might look a little different. It might not be quite as high intensity and it might not last quite as long for their flow training. And I just thought that was really interesting. On that point, in the book, I talk about perception and how important the role of perception in your training is. So a lot of people are caught up in trying to follow a very, very specific script. For example, looking at that flow cycle, it looks like a script. It looks like I'm delegating very specific intensities that you need to follow. Well, it may not work for you. You may not be able to take that three or four minutes at that high intensity heart rate. And I suggest in my book, a lot of times, that it's a recommendation of process, not necessarily a script to follow. Because when you start to allow your perception to weigh into the science of the training, you're gonna start noticing that you develop a kinship with your capacities. And then you start to build on that. And then things really start to happen for you. It really starts to make a great big difference in your ability to support work over time. So yeah. I think we kicked that way down the road. What else we got? <laughs> awesome. All right. 
Uh, oh, this is interesting. Um, is there? This is something I've always wondered too. Is there a place for nasal breathing and using the breath gears system, Brian McKenzie, in training for competitive endurance sports such as OCR and high rocks? I recently had a PNOE VO2 test, which indicated my breathing was well below its capacity, which they believed was due to using nasal breathing at lower intensities during training. Wow. Uh, okay, so uh, A, I get the question a lot about breathing patterns and how to train breathing patterns. And there's a lot of trend that wraps around breathing patterns. And the king of all breathing patterns, Wim Hof. Anybody that's ever followed Wim Hof, you know, the guy's a freak of nature. He does some crazy things. And there are people that, uh, through this hyperventilation, have found some secrets to success in their ability to support cold, um, frigid temperatures, it's it just off the hook. Now, uh, there's also people out there that want to suggest to you that you breathe exclusively through your nose. Well, let me tell you something. You want to get air into your body as readily as possible. You want to evacuate the waste product, carbon dioxide, as readily as possible. You don't want to try to inhibit those processes. And, you know, so people will start talking about their capacity to control their breathing at lower intensities. Well, there's this thing called your autonomic system, which has a communication with your central nervous system that disallows you from having the responsibility of controlling your breathing when the intensity gets great. So you're going to start noticing that it's harder to try to control your breathing when the intensity goes up. And so I suggest that you don't wrestle with it. Just take air as best you can. I, I recommend to people breathe through your nose and through your mouth. So this test that he's referring to, this PNOE, PNOE or something, I actually mm -hmm. met these guys and they introduced me to their little device. And all it is is it's a portable direct gas analysis machine. It's much like the equipment that I use in my lab. The difference being is it's portable. Hmm. Now, the reason I'm even bringing this to light is because he's talking about they're saying his breathing capacity is inhibiting his, his total capacity. So the way he's breathing is affecting his capacity to have a, a, a greater potential. So at the end of the day, what we're talking about when we speak of potential is VO2 max. The maximum volume of oxygen your body can process relative to your mass in kilos of body weight per minute. I know it's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. How much air basically can you get into your body? How much oxygen is being delivered to your working body? How much of it can you use? And how much waste product is being liberated from your body? And it has almost nothing to do with the way you're trying to control your breathing. <laughs> I would suggest that if you're trying to mess with your breathing during a test like that, it may inhibit your capacity to get a better score. But when the intensity goes up, the autonomic system is going to kick in, and you're not going to be able to do it anyway. So if the test is conducted properly, when it gets ugly, you're going to be grasping for whatever air you can get from whatever hole in your body you can take it in. So uh, I, I'm not terribly convinced that that interpretation of the, the test was something I'd want to lean towards. And again, okay. this is coming from somebody that's been te testing athletes for 25 years. And I did have a chance to hold that device in my hand. I looked at the reports. I know how the thing works, and at the end of the day, it's either less or equally effective as the equipment that we use in our lab. Gotcha. Okay, interesting. 
So you don't just kind of add on to that. You don't have any specific like breathing system for running, especially because I know a lot of people have done like hold your breath for the last 400 meters or no, stuff like that. Like no, that's that's a bad idea. Okay. I mean, okay. if you yeah, so hypoxic training essentially is what we're talking about. I know guys that will like try to carry a rock in the ocean, you know, on the ocean's floor mm -hmm. to, you know, just to hold them down and just to suffer through the, you know, the carbon dioxide production that's in the body. You know, I was at a, uh, I was at a lecture that one of the presenters was Jack Daniels. And if anybody's read anything from Dr. Jack Daniels, the guy's a dinosaur, is a physiologist forever. And uh, he was talking about breathing and he was talking about, he, here's, the, here's what he suggested. He said, look, if I put you in a safe and lock the door, the lack of oxygen is not going to be the problem. It's the carbon dioxide that's going to be held in there that's going to kill you. It's going to be excruciating. It's going to be an excruciating death, not because you're you're not getting enough oxygen. It's just because you become so toxic from the carbon dioxide in the room and the oxygen not being there for you. And so um, tolerating that production of lactate, tolerating that, that carbon dioxide in your system is, is just ugly. And does it bear out any training effect? I don't know. I don't think so. So go back to the, the training masks. Remember the old training mask that everybody was wearing? Everybody want to look yeah. like that dude in, uh, uh, what's that name? Bane? Yeah. Bane. Bane. Woo! They got that mask on their face and everybody's running up and down stadium stairs wearing that mask. And they think that they're replicating uh, altitude training and, you know, better minds at the work came together and basically poo-pooed the benefits of doing that. Hmm. I want you to get air as best you can when you're training. Because when you get better air, you can perform better. You can do more work. And more work is what's going to improve your capacity to perform. That's just me talking. Gotcha. I like it. I like it. And that question was from Chris Woolley, by the way. Yes. All right. And then uh, I'll quickly go through his other questions. It says, looking at a polarized training approach, 80-20, would you split up the training time spent aerobically? For example, would you have half of it at a lower zone, 70% uh, of max HR, and half at 80% of max around aerobic threshold, or MAF? Or would you suggest to move away from polarized training? You kind of already talked about that. Do you want to go over that anymore? Well, again, you know, and again, I knew this was coming because I saw the question, but polarized training is kind of a novel concept. A lot of people use the term polarized training. In essence, what polarized training means by definition is separating work, segregating work. And I, I've just pointed out that I don't like to segregate work. I found that, well, here's this, the analogy that I've used a lot, and uh, it may resonate with you, it may not. But think of energy. Energy consumed, energy spent. We consume fuel, in the form of carbohydrates, fats, and protein. That's our energy intake. And then we expend it. And depending on the intensity of our efforts is where we're gonna pull our lion's share from this energy store. So we've intuitively identified that in order to have effective metabolism, we need all three substrates. We need fat, we need protein, we need carbohydrate. Would you think to separate those substrates where Monday's my carbohydrate day, Tuesday is my protein day, and Wednesday is going to be my fat day. And hope that at the end of the week that your energy consumption was adequate and effective. Well, think of energy expenditure in the same way. 
this would be basically polarized eating we're talking about. You're separating the fuel substances and putting them on different days of the week, and that's your polarized <laughs> consumption of fuel. And if you think of that, if you're not laughing right now, you're dead asleep, right? Because it's just a silly proposition. And the concept of flow is integrating all of the different aspects of the energy system and intensities in one setting, but you could still control the volume. So if you were trying to be an endurance athlete, your carbohydrate stores, you, your consumption needs to be greater than your protein or your fat stores. And if you look at the history of some of the greatest endurance athletes on the planet, they get upwards of 70 to 80% of their consumption from carbohydrate. And, but if you're not going to plan to run 140 miles a week, you probably don't need to eat that much carbohydrate, right? So the, the amount you consume is going to be relative to task that you're, you're planning for. You're not going to need all that carbohydrate if you don't plan on burning it, right? So what I'm suggesting to you is the way you arrange your fuel consumption is much to do with the way you, you're going to expend it. You know, if, you're, if you know that your task is, is going to be long and you need more energy, you're going to work on your endurance. It's going to be a dominant influence in your training. But it doesn't need to happen on a specific day. So I don't like the concept of polarized training. I guess that's the short story, right? Okay. Yeah, and an interesting thought, too, just something I was thinking about. So it's obviously when you see 80-20, it's easy to think, oh, separate it out throughout the week. But also just on the other side of it, looking at that chart you showed earlier, that was, by the time you're done with that flow, that was close to 80-20. And like you had talked about previously at the clinic and everything was if you're a high intensity athlete training for sprints, it might look more like 60-40 or 70-30 versus if you're doing long stuff, it might be more 80-20, but it's still similar principles. Yeah, well, no, I'm, I'm not suggesting that the ratios are incorrect. I'm suggesting mm -hmm. that the ratios should be consistent with the task. So, for example, and you know, I, I don't know how I can avoid having this conversation because it's so uh, eminent in the, in the world that we're communicating with. High rocks. Those that know me know that I've had a lot of influence over Hunter McIntyre's training over the past six years. And when I first started working with him, his focus was winning OCR World Championships. And here you got a 200-pound guy who's trying to race uh, at the time was Hobie Call, which is about a 140-pound guy. Uh, Hunter used to refer to him as a chicken nugget with legs. And he's trying to beat this guy on a mountain. At that time, it was it was in Killington, in Vermont. So you got a 200-pound guy trying to outrun a 140-pound guy going up a mountain. It's a big ask. It's a really tough request. So we went to work, and he developed an amazing aerobic engine. He was able... I've trained with him, I'd have him run a sub six minute mile for a half marathon and be 66% into his fat stores, which means it's very, very sustainable for him. And the, the outcome is that it's fast enough to be right up there and challenging some of the best athletes in the sport. To this day, because of the high intensity training he's done in CrossFit and now in High Rocks, he's suffered some of the VO2 score and suffered some of the aerobic potential but he's developed a, an innate capacity to hang on to really high intensity for an hour. And he was a little miffed by the, the results from the test. And I said, stop con concerning yourself with it. Just focus on the type of competitions you're in right now, and you're going to be a winner more often than not. And proof of the pudding is he's not lost a High Rocks event to anybody yet. 
and I, I, I don't see anybody in the foreseeable future being. I want to read this, uh, this comment from Ben Pena sitting here. Because you know I've adhered to your teachings with diligence since uh, we met in Austin in 2014. I've always kept my thoughts on breathing secrets from you. Um, you laugh out loud. As far as breathing, I've always thought when the body starts trying to survive, uh, think almost drowning over heating a cold plunge. Autonomic breathing sucks in those situations. You have consciously you have to consciously take charge of your breathing, be in control. No similarity when you start reaching super high intensities is the question, I guess. So, well, first of all, I don't think I'd want to try to take control over my breathing when my body starts to struggle to get air. Your autonomic system is developed for you to protect you. And uh, I just don't feel like I have the license to try to override the innate capacities of my body or human structure. I just think it's a bad idea. I mean, the, listen, I know I'm gonna get pushed back from people that wanna tell you that, you know, this trendy thing they've been doing over the years has really been working out for them and whatever. And there's always gonna be those outliers that, you know, we, I had this conversation in our last clinic. Somebody was talking about something similar to this. And I made the analogy with uh, an experience I had with a fellow once upon a time stood in front of me and ripped a quarter in half with his bare hands. Now, I'm telling you, this was no circus trick. This guy literally, between his thumb and forefingers, grabbed a quarter in my face and ripped it like a piece of paper in half. Now, I had actually a guy who said, well, can you train for that? And I'm like, no, I don't know. I just, uh, whatever the training program might be, I don't know what it would look like. But point of the matter is, is that there are these outliers. You're going to get these freaks of nature that can do stuff. But from a general perspective, I'm going to, I'm going to coin a term. There's a thing called grass, which is generally recognized as safe. That's uh, something that's termed in the physiologic and medical community. Now there's a new one generally recognized as ridiculous okay it's just a ridiculous proposition to try to prepare you for something like that and so i'm going to put trying to control your breathing under stress under the same category and that's that's just that's my opinion you know i'm entitled so what else all right <laughs> all right uh let's let's do what uh our buddy matt sent us all right so he said coach this is Matt Worley, by the way. Ah. He said, Coach, you stress the 180 um, SPMs, like steps per minute, okay. and proper ground contact. Is that more important than proper pelvis upper body position? Can you describe correct pelvis upper body position and how it relates to ground contact? Any training tips to keep it correct? Okay, here I go again. I'm going to be simple, right? Uh, simple is easy. What, what is it? The KISS principle, right? We're talking about the position of his pelvis in flight and or mm -hmm. uh, at ground contact. Uh, I have a video that I put up on my YouTube channel, five tips for, for running. And in that, the very first thing, and the thing that I've been banging the drum pretty heavily about these days is number one on my list, which is stick the landing. When you take flight and you come back to earth in your run, how you land, where that foot is placed relative to your body, the position of your body in space when you make that ground contact 
what I refer to as sticking the landing. When you stick the landing, there is this uh, congruence, I guess is the word I want to use, where from ground contact right into your pelvic floor, right into your abdominal muscles, your core muscles that people like to talk about so much, are integrated structurally to cause stability. So it's like an instantaneous effort. Everything comes together and does what it's supposed to do, assuming that the landing is correct. When you start to consider how to control your anterior posterior pelvic tilt and include that in the process of making sure the landing is correct, you've got a table full of things to concern yourself with. And I just don't think that there's a concern. Now, if you're finding that structurally that you are hyperlordotic, so for those that don't know what that is, it's where you're sway back. If by nature, you're sway back, walking around, standing in a room, whatever, you tend to be sway back. There's some structural imbalances there that might be addressed. And I would suggest that if you're having problems like that, address them in training, not while you're running. Don't try to address that problem while you're running. If you can improve your structural integrity in training, it'll carry over and it'll be even that much better for you when you do run. But the most important thing that, and it's going to come up again, I know, I saw some questions. Mm -hmm. Stick the landing. Cool. I like that, actually, what you just said, because I before I started coaching with you, that's what I heard was, yeah, fix the pelvis, tighten the core, all that. And when something you just said was kind of interesting, train that stuff outside of the running. When you're running, focus on the foot. Because, yeah, for me, when I was running, I'm like, I can't focus on 15 things at once. Like, okay, tuck my tailbone, do this, do this, do this, and get the right stride. So that makes sense to me. Well, focus so, on the feet. Yeah, yeah, taking it a step further, it's like when you, when you look at – you know, I've been trained in movement analysis and functional movement patterns, okay? So we do a screen. We have the potential to do a screen. You stand up and face me. And then, you know, you turn and I get to look at you from the side. I get to look at you from the back. And anatomically, we're looking for deviations. Maybe it's some, some abnormalities in the way your, your, your body is holding itself up. And so... From that, you start looking at the things that need to be corrected and what things you might do in order to improve upon those circumstances. And so if you've got issues with the way your structure is, is aligned, it may be very difficult for you to actually run correctly because you're at a disadvantage from the gate. So if you're wise, you start looking at those issues up front and then start addressing them in your training paradigm. So uh, and I know the question's going to come up about when to arrange your weight training relative to marathon training and stuff like this. To me, and I'm almost going to answer it now, it's like weight training for an athlete is a method of developing your capacity to perform. It's not an aesthetic training modality. So there are people that lift weights because they want to look great. And they're, they're, they want to build their appearance. And even that is kind of interesting because you know from a dietetic perspective what people will do to themselves in order to look more shredded that doesn't necessarily mean that they're more fit or more capable <laughs> of producing more work right but aesthetically it's pleasing to them it's what they aspire to do 
So a lot of isolated movement patterns to make the delts pop and, you know, a lot of ab work and whatever to make that work. It doesn't necessarily mean synergistically that everything is functioning better. So from a training perspective, I've always looked at what is it we need in order to help us perform better. And so those are the exercises I chase. And they're very specific to the outcome of whatever it is we're trying to produce. So obviously, uh, I'm going to use high rocks again as, an, as a, an analogy. I was listening to uh, a recap from the top guys in, in uh, uh, this past event. And this fella, his name escapes me, 160 pounds, six foot two, comes in second place, right, behind Hunter. And he said, you know what? He said, instead of doing a lot of deadlifts and squats and things like that, I knew my weakness would be that sled. So hmm. guess what I did? I did a shit ton of sled work, pushing and pulling and pushing. Smartest thing I've heard an athlete say in a long time. You know, focus on the tasks, focus on the needs, develop your capacity to produce that work. And so that's kind of off point, but it's, it's in keeping with what we're talking about here. Structural analysis, figure out what the, the, the issues are that need to be addressed, and then go to work on those. And then you'll start to notice that your performance has improved, whether it be running or whatever. So we got a couple of questions here again. It's Ben again. Uh, so Ben says that Ian Hosick may be where the pelvic position comes from. He was on Bracken and Kirk's podcast and spoke heavily on the importance of the pelvic position. Okay. All right. So I guess that would be important if, you, if you're hyperlordotic or even hyperkyphotic. If you have some structural abnormalities, but this is not something you want to try to control when you run. Again, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm beating a dead horse here, but you have to realize my world, what I do every day, what I've been doing for a multitude of years is working with athletes to help them to, to perform better. And I had a guy come in to see me at the secret lab a while back. And apparently he'd been following a lot of my work. He comes in and he goes, he goes, you know what? He goes, I got the nine things. He goes, I've got the nine things. I said, what? He said, I have the nine things. So he was suggesting to me there was nine deal points that he needed to focus on while he was running. And I said, I hate to break it to you, but really there's only one thing I want you to worry about. He was so deflated. <laughs> he goes, yeah, he goes, it was so hard to try to keep in touch with all these things while I was running. Yeah. I said, well, it's because you're thinking about too much stuff. If you just focus on one thing, focus on sticking the landing, you're going to start to notice that everything else will fall in place. And by the way, there's a question about that in here too. So let's just move on. Yeah. Well, I think real quick before we move on, one thing that I think is important about that is it's not that it's not that the pelvic position doesn't matter. It's that you can't focus on it while you're running. You're going to focus on that outside of the running during the training. If you have issues, fix it. Make sure you're you're stable and balanced as like a person standing there and then while running focus on the foot. So that's kind of my takeaway. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of what it's sounding like you're saying. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to go a little deeper and then I'm going to leave it. <laughs> I'm going to give you another analogy. Okay. Now you realize like that all over the United States doing clinics, watching people run, videoing the way they move and going into analysis of the way they're moving and why and what they need to do to improve. This is what I do, and I've done this easily for the past decade all over the country, and still do. 
had a couple guys that are going to remain nameless. I'm not going to throw them under the bus. That were I refer to them as my bird dogs. These are guys who are helping me with with the clinic. You know, much better runner than I'll ever be because I'm an old man, and I would use them for the running components on trail and what have you. Uh, one of the fellows that was with me is a very serious ultra distance runner, and uh, I said, "Okay, we're on the trail now. You know, you, you, you're king of the trails. It's it's up to you. Why don't you explain to him what you know what you think they need to be doing?" So the guy started looking around on the ground for a stick, okay? And I had no idea what he was doing. And then he took the stick and he tried to hold it with his butt cheeks, okay? Must have been fun to watch. He stuck the <laughs> stick in his butt and suggested that when you run uphill, you should try to hold the stick with your butt cheeks. And my jaw was on the ground. I'm like, here's a guy that's actually working for me, and he's telling people to put a stick in their butt. So we spoke about it afterwards, and uh, clearly, trying to squeeze your butt cheeks together while you run up a hill, try it sometime, and see how much faster you get. <laughs> see how much more capable you become. Because now you got a lot of stuff on your plate. you got a lot of things to think about. And I don't think it's going to bear any fruit. Okay, that's just my personal opinion. I actually have tried that before, and it is really not you it's weird. It's hard. I have. Yep. Try and like not have the stick, but oh, okay. but like squeeze it, like actively squeezing your glutes while running up a hill. Well, and this, this I did not see a benefit. Stick in his butt cheeks. And and by the <laughs> way, it wasn't the only time he did it. Uh, another time, another, I think we're, I don't know where we were that time, but we went to another place and we we're doing a clinic and he started looking around on the ground and me and my, uh, my other assistant was like, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Try to talk. About what, it. so what point was he trying to make? Just that like, you're supposed to be activating well, so your, your glutes while running uphill? I guess is you're going to, by contracting your glutes, right? You're engaging your glutes, right? But if you really want to engage your glute, your glutes are going to get engaged on an uphill anyway. Why? Because there's hip extension. If you want mm -hmm. your glutes to fire, hip extension is what's going to cause that to have happen, right? Yeah. If you're if you're running on flats and you overstride, you won't engage your glutes because you're not in a proper position to do it if you're overstriding. It's just a function of engagement, where your position in space is and what muscles are going to be, going to be recruited. And again, that's not even something that you have a lot of control over dynamically. You don't. <laughs> I mean, you could maybe flex your butt cheek, you know, but I, again, I wouldn't try to do that while I was running. I, th I think it's just too much to ask. That's just me. Gotcha. What else? Interesting. We got? Okay. All right. Um, all right. Well, Josh Sullivan is asking, why do you dislike self-propelled treadmills? Is the glute and other muscle activation, the curve cause more beneficial versus what a power treadmill does? And then he goes on and on, but it looks like that's... Do you want me to read the whole thing or? No, no. So I get it. Yeah. I, I, I get it. So, and I did read this question. Thank yeah. you, Josh, for the question, by the way. I have a problem with non-motorized treadmills for one very specific reason. First of all, in order to mechanize the belt, you have to reach up onto the ramp to pull the belt behind you. Okay? So it's teaching you to overstride and it's teaching you to preferentially load the posterior chain. You do not want to isolate the posterior chain from the anterior chain when you're running. It's like 
go home, unplug half your spark plugs, and watch how your performance comes about. Now maybe if you never knew that those, those spark plugs were undone, you may function as, as normal. It just seems good to you. Uh, and so what I'm suggesting to you is that pulling is not an effective function of running. You want to be pushing your body through space, not pulling your body through space. And you can't push on a treadmill that requires you to pull it to make the belt move. So I don't care which machine it is. I've tried them, but I went to an URSA convention, International Health and Racket Sports Associations convention, where all of the manufacturers of all the commercial industry equipment shows up. And I think I got on 20 different non-motorized treadmills and they all function the same way. They have different bells and whistles, but at the end of the day, in order to get that thing to move, it's like a, a rat on the wheel. You gotta get up on the wheel and pull it down, pull it down, pull it down. You're pulling and you're definitely using your posterior chain. I, I just, I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. Yeah, cool. I always hated those, the feel of them. So that makes sense. Now I know yeah. why. Yeah, by the way, if you do a lot of work like that, what do you think fires up? Your hamstrings. Your, your hamstrings are lit after a good workout on those things. I'm sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, here's a short one from Miles Keller. It says, homeopathy and chiropractors are not recognized by science as real forms of medicine. What are some other forms of alleged medicine that science disputes? I recently hear that adrenal fatigue is not recognized either. Is there such, and then he sent like, it looks like an article about, is there such a thing as adrenal fatigue? And I then posted that for you. Oh, oh, you put that in there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so let, cool. let, let's be honest with each other. I, I'm not a physician. I don't purport to be. I'm not in. I'm not into medicine. Uh, I I'm an experience-based guy, and I, I have a, a good bit of training under my belt. So what we're really talking about is holistic training versus practical medicine. Okay, and I, I think the the departure between the the two are the ability to prescribe medications. At the end of the day, I know chiropractors that are very very talented practitioners and are I very, very helpful and done a lot of magic for a lot of people uh, as is the case for potentially a physical therapist same type of thing these guys are body workers they do an amazing job now I get that uh, traditional medicine has some pushback against chiropractic care and I think in some cases for good reason when the chiropractors tend to get out out of their scope they, they start, you know, winding their way further and further away from their practice. And then I think it becomes a little problematic. But And I'm not trying to uh, shade the chiropractic community. I, I know yeah. some amazing chiropractors. I mean, way, way intelligent people. And uh, I would trust them with my life. And then there are people in the medical practice that I may not trust with my, my life. So it just really gets down to who you're dealing with. Uh, as far as adrenal fatigue, I, I you know, again, because I'm, I'm, I, I looked it up. I said, well, let's see what they say. So the article that I posted there came from the Mayo Clinic. And the commentary mm -hmm. about whether it's actually, well, what, what do you see there? I shared it with you. So what, what are they saying? <clears throat> yeah, it said adrenal fatigue isn't an accepted medical diagnosis. It is a lay term applied to a collection of nonspecific symptoms such as body aches, fatigue, 
nervousness, that's interesting, sleep disturbances, and digestive problems. Your adrenal gland, glands produce a variety of hormones that are essential to life. The medical term adrenal insufficiency refers to inadequate production of one or more of these hormones as a result of an underlying disease or surgery. And then it shows the signs and symptoms, which are kind of what we would attribute with adrenal fatigue. Yeah, well, so there you go. I don't even know what to tell you. I just, uh, whether it is or is not something that the medical community wants to look at as actually a thing, clearly it is a thing. It is a, it is a problem. And, and deficiencies in your adrenal hormones, it's, 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 it's a problem. So if you're overworked and you consistently overwork and you, you don't rest and the stress levels are high, it's problematic. And you could coin it however you might. But at the end of the day, overreaching, overtraining, is problematic for a lot of athletes. Should I bring up my little? Uh, maybe I should. Yeah, let's see if I can. You know, I don't want to apologize to the people that are going to get this on audio only. And if you do, I would highly recommend that you go to my YouTube channel, not DS Human Performance, but Richard Diaz. And I hope to post this on that site. So if you want to see what you missed, that was the way to do it. So, so having said that. I want to share with you. While you're doing that, I'll just answer Matt's question for me, which was, he said, Leah, can you detail your best tips on grip-related obstacles or just effing do them for me? (laughs) Uh, Biggest thing I would say for grip is just do it. Like, it's one of those things. If you don't do it, you're not going to benefit. Doing it once a week, once every other week isn't going to do a ton for you. Do hang from bars every day play around on things, do grip workouts, throw them in there, actually do it multiple days a week. And you're going to see results. You're going to, it's going to suck for a couple weeks. You're going to feel like you're just getting weaker and weaker, but then you're suddenly going to start being able to do stuff that you couldn't do before. So that's what I would say. Awesome. Okay, here we go. Boom. This is in keeping with the, the comments about adrenal stress. Okay. So what I'm showing here is referred to as a super compensation chart. And so if you look at the graph, let's go from the bottom left, the, the horizontal line here, we're showing time and it's showing that the low end is resting and the high end on the left, the upper left there, it says overstepping your maximum capacity will result in chronic fatigue, overtraining and injury. And then if you look at this red line, and I know you can't see my cursor, I apologize, but the red line is showing maximum adaptation capacity. So for the return on your investment from the work you did, it's indicating when you reach that point, that's as much as you're going to get from the work you did. And then that maximum capacity is followed by adequate recovery. And this is where a lot of people get into trouble is because they think that working is what's necessary to improve. Resting is when you improve. Work is what deflates your fitness. Recovery was, is what improves your fitness, as is indicated here. So you can see the little scribbly blue line above the minimum required load. So in other words, look at the green line as exercise. This is a minimum load you needed to see a return in your investment. And you can see work, recovery, work, recovery, work, greater work, greater recovery, greater work, less recovery, greater work, less recovery, not as great a work, and then big recovery, and then look at right after the great big hoop in the recovery, 
you see a, a lot more improvement in the outcome. And then we're following that line. So essentially, this is structuring work over time that results in improvements in your capacity to perform work. And so the reason I'm even bringing this to your attention is because if you don't get enough recovery, you can't expect to see the type of responses you're looking for. And what ends up happening is you just overtrain, you're overstressed, and eventually you can run into some very serious health concerns. And when we start talking about adrenal fatigue, things like this, this is very much in keeping with the outcomes of maladaptation in the approach to training. How about that? I like it. It reminds me of something uh, Bracken and Kirk said one time was about if you go out and get a sunburn or you get a suntan, you can only do it for so long and then you have to go recover. But if you try to just keep burning day after day, you're just going to roast your skin. You have to let it heal in between kind of thing. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I guess it's funny. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds reasonable. What else we got? All right. So I want to go back to some of Chris Woolley's questions. He had two more for us, um, which looked like fun. So he said, for high rocks, would you use a long run as typically adopted by runners and OCR athletes or change this to a long wad with a mix of running and strength stations due to the nature of high rocks being 50% running and 50% strength exercises? That's really interesting because I've often wondered about that with compromised running and all that. Well, again, we I think we covered that. I, we talked about the fact that the task, I mean, how you're going to approach the work relative to task. How are you going to arrange your work relative to the challenges you hope to face? And if you think that you're going to do a whole bunch of long aerobic running to improve your capacity in an anaerobic environment, I think you're smoking crack because it's just not going to benefit you. Quite frankly, it's a waste of training time in my opinion. If you're going to, I mean, I understand dipping down into aerobic metabolism in order to recover, but you need to spend a, a great deal of time anaerobically if you're hoping to achieve greatness in a sport that is high intensity. That's all there is to it. So to clarify on that. A greater example, and again, you know, I'm old, so I get my old man card out and I, you know, want people to forgive me. I work with some sprinters, collegiate sprinters. I got one at UCLA, I got one at USC. These are really high caliber sprinters. One runs 100, one, the other one runs a 200. Never, ever, ever, ever in their training do they go past 800 meters in a run, ever. Hmm. I mean, and the 800 meter runs are murder for them. And when I work with these athletes in my lab, I need to give them five minutes rest between the bouts of exercise we do that might have been 10 seconds each. And because they just don't have that that mechanism to be enduring. But they can run like hell for 100 meters or 200 meters. And so they've developed, well, I mean, probably to some degree that's genetic, but to a great degree, the, the approach in their training is all anaerobic. And that's what their task is. So uh, using that same analogy, take it a step further and you're thinking my event's going to be an hour long and it's interspersed with eight one kilometer sprints with some heavy exercises in between. If anything, there's very few opportunities to really recover during those type of events. So you need to be able to handle an ensuing production of lactate and solve that problem. And uh, I do, I have written flow cycles for that specific type of training as I have for CrossFitters and had amazing results from these athletes 
Um, and very, very rarely, if at all, do they do anything that is just steady state aerobic conditioning. Hmm. All right, so there's a question here cool. from Cody Hughes. Cody's actually an old client of mine. He's been to the lab a few times. Uh, for your flow running, when you when do you start introducing more anaerobic efforts moving towards race day? For example, you start 20, 20, 20% MSD, 20% anaerobic, 60% aerobic through each workout moving closer to race day. Would you start changing those percentages to something like, okay, so the percentages will be progressive. Regardless of what type of a event you're, you're speaking of, there will be progression. We want to get more and more capable of getting better at what it is we're trying to achieve. So you didn't state what specific event we're talking about, whether it be a 5K or a marathon. So it's kind of hard to, to look at these percentages and say, oh yeah, that's correct or incorrect. But conceptually, you understand what I'm saying. So you're going to look at the needs and you're going to look at the focus on the time spent in each training bout and each flow cycle based on demand. What else we got? Cool. Uh, Chris Woolley's last question. Would you suggest an athlete focus more on 5K, 10K, or half marathon style running sessions when training for high rocks or a combo? Due to the race actually being run at half marathon to marathon race pace, how does this affect the training? Well, I think I just answered that. Yeah, you literally just talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> what else we got? Cool. Uh, let's see. It sent a couple more over. All right. Uh, how do you yeah how do you balance marathon training and weightlifting? You had referenced that earlier. I th yeah. I, I again, when when I think in terms of weight training, the weight training is supplemental to task. It's a function of what are we trying to develop? Where are the imbalances? Where are the concerns we have? And addressing those in training. And the exercise should be very specific to the outcome, not just today's my weight training day. So I'm going to do the, you know, the garden variety of, you know, isolated movement patterns. I'm going to do a bench press. I'm going to do a lat pull. I'm going to do leg extension, leg curl, calf raise, bicep curl, tricep extension, overhead press. You know, you don't need to go through that that dialogue and hope that. I mean, structurally, it's going to make you stronger. Let's face it. If you lift weights, you make your muscles stronger. You're better. Uh, are you developing any imbalances? Maybe. Uh, is it going to be beneficial to the way you're you're hoping to race? Maybe. But I'd rather be take the time and be more specific and go right after the things that you need to address. Yeah, the way I kind of feel about that is like it's the difference between a generic training plan versus like training specifically for an event kind of thing. Just same with that high rocks thing. Yeah, you could use a 5K training plan to help whatever. But versus, yeah, dive in specifically for what you're training for. You're going to see way better results. Makes sense. All right. Uh, and that was from OCR Pick Road Trips. Yeah, I didn't know what his name was. I just wrote down his, his Instagram. We'll go with it. <laughs> and this is from Sarah HJR7. What do you think about Normatec boots? Should a runner invest? Seven-minute ice baths? Should an athlete jump back into a running program, speed work, lateral work, temper work, <laughs> or long runs after completing a trifecta ultra beast weekend? You know, I think I'm going to make a lot of enemies doing this. You know what I mean? Maybe I'm in over my head because you realize that, again, I'm pulling my old man card out and I'm just telling you what my experiences have taught me over the years. And, you know, I'm getting Social Security. I've been at this a long freaking time, okay? So you got to forgive me. It's either respect the old man knows something or not. I have athletes I've been coaching and training and some of them world-class athletes. And 
one of the first things I do when I meet them is when they give me their agenda, they're showing me what their season's gonna look like, what races they hope to attend. I get out my, my magic marker and I start striking out events. And generally what I do is when they show up, for example, let's just give you a location. Let's say we're gonna go to Utah. And maybe Utah has a trifecta weekend you know, available to you. I'm gonna ask them what race is it that they really wanna do well at, and then I'm gonna subtract the other two. Because a trifecta, in my mind, is a marketing gimmick. It's something that the, that the race producers create in order to get you to spend more money that weekend. That's what it boils down to. Now, from an ego perspective, there's people that, that take on that challenge and they wanna do really well with it. And uh, I just think really at the end of the day, I'm very into focus. I like to pick an event, win the event and move on. Don't expect that you're going to crush all three events and and it's gonna it's just the way, you know, every place you go, all three events are yours. I've worked with VJ Jones for the past three and a half years now, I think it is. And if you ask him, he'll tell you. When when he gets ready to go to a, a race, I'll say, do the one that we're gonna do, you know, the one we trained for, and leave the other one alone. The only exception to that is that if he doesn't make the podium, doesn't get paid in the first event, we'll stick around and try to, you know, patch it up and try to make some money the following day. But unless that's your concern, I would say focus on the events that you intend to race and be done with it. As far as recovery, okay, so you're asking me how do you best recover after three days of beating the hell out of yourself? Uh, I would suggest that you take the next week and a half off, maybe two weeks off. If you really went hard, if you did an ultra beast, you did an ultra or a, a, a beast distance event and a super event over the course of a weekend, your body's in disrepair. You need, I can bring that graph back up and show you the stress related issues and how much recovery is required in order for you to be progressive. You know, so you can survive and you could be, you know, the, the inspiration of your friends and neighbors by, by taking a beating, but it's just not how I roll. I, I don't like to see my athletes do that. As far as the Normatec boots, I've never had a pair on. I understand the concept. Uh, I have modalities that I use when I need to help an athlete get into a better place when they're in disrepair. I like to floss. I think flossing is amazing. I, I'm trained in instrument-assisted soft tissue mobilization, so if we, we've got to go deep, I'll, I'll go to work like that. I'm into cupping. I think cupping is amazing. But again, this is very regional specific. So a lot of times when you're beat down, there's a specific area that's really put out. For example, maybe your calves. It could be the bottom of your feet. It could be even uh, your IT band if your mechanics are off. So I try to address those issues. Normatec boots to me are kind of a global, well, I guess I have had that, you know, I've had surgery before, and they, you know they're trying to make sure that you don't have deep vein thrombosis, so they, you know, they put you in those, those uh, what do you call it, those purging, you know, sleeves over your legs or whatever. I've, I've been down that road before, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I have athletes I work with that own Normatec boots, and they're expensive. And, uh, you know, they have the where to for to do it, and they, they, they enjoy it. They, they seem to feel like it helps them a lot. If it works for you, you got the money, go for it. But to be honest with you, if, if, if the question is, and it wasn't, if the question was, 
do I think you should do a trifecta or do I think you should nail one of the races during that weekend? You know my answer. So I want to ask you on that one, because what about for all the people like who aren't going to win the race, who they want to, they're not, I'm not going to the race to win the race. They want to go to experience the race three times. Like they want to run it easier and slower or whatever and just have fun for a whole weekend. Then then that's great. I mean, if if you just want to go out there muddy down the court, I know people that it's a social event, you know, when your friend is doing burpees, you wait for them. Right. Yep. You know what I mean? And like, okay, whatever. If you like to run around the mud and you like to wait for your friends and it's just something you've really found enjoyment in, have at it. Have a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know Sarah, and I know she's interested in improving. You know, we've discussed it. She talked about coming out to see me, and I know she's looking to oh, do better. Sarah. And to me, and I was addressing the question to Sarah, and so the question mm-hmm. being. You know, what do I think about this trifecta? If we sat down over a beer, I'd be trying to talk you out of some of that stuff and start showing you the things I think you should be doing to get to a better place. And uh, cool. I think I could level you up pretty quickly if we could just eliminate some of the, you know, the, the uh, rough edges on this process. So. Sweet. Well, we got any more? Uh... A friend of mine asked, what would be running training for Ultimate Frisbee? If you don't know, that was my past, was Ultimate Frisbee. Uh, any tips, general workouts to get people started? Um, for I mean, Ultimate Frisbee is basically just sprinting hard as you can, and then you stop and you guard slowly, and then you sprint again, and then you sprint again, and you sprint again, and you sprint again. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't trained Ultimate in six years now. But there's a lot of sprint training back when I was doing it, and it was some cardio kind of stuff. I wish I'd known flow training back then. I mean, it's pretty darn similar. You're basically recovering slowly and then getting back up to full speed and then trying to recover as fast as you can and then repeat. So flow training would have been perfect. (laughs) You know, I got introduced to Frisbee a month ago. One of my clients' father, just we were having a discussion, and I was trying to explain some things. She's a soccer client. I was trying to explain to him the nuances of some of this obstacle course racing and things. It's completely mm-hmm. out of his wheelhouse. And he was really intrigued by it, but he said, you know, he goes, I'm, I'm also into obscure events. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, I'm into Frisbee. I said, really? I, and I, and I, I mean, like, okay, I was a kid. I threw a Frisbee before. Mm-hmm. And he goes into his car and brings out this backpack with, like, the <laughs> trunk on the back of it. And he had 40... 40 frisbees in the back of this thing. Different mm-hmm. weights for different purposes. Almost like oh, a yeah. back. It's like golf. And he started pulling them out and explaining to me, well, this one will make you make that left-hand turn, and this one, that straight shot. This one's kind of like an eraser. It, it sticks into the ground, so if you want to stop it. And I was like, wow. And then he started showing me the app that was associated with it, how many places around us there were to go compete and then he, he let me know that the the world champion Frisbee dude, whoever it was, just signed a $10 million contract. And yep. I felt so small. <laughs> I just felt, I felt so small. I felt, I said, wow, you know, I mean, my poor sport, you know, these guys are wrestling over nickels. And I got yeah. a Frisbee dude that's making $10 million. And, oh man, it's just- And to clarify, that is disc golf. Not ultimate frisbee, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I played 
I played ultimate frisbee, which was basically more similar to soccer, high intensity running, teams of seven on a field, all that. I have also played disc golf and I suck at it, but yeah, there is money in it. It's weird. I had a friend who was going pro actually in that. It's there's quite a bit of money. Yeah, <laughs> more than ultimate frisbee. <laughs> that he doesn't run. Uh, yeah. That it's more of a precision thing. And oh yeah, it's started, like golf. Yeah, he started explaining to me that there's the like the hippies that play. And, you know, they're like into, you know, smoking a doobie and throwing the thing. And they're not really into precision. He's a precision guy. And was showing mm. me all the precision. And his daughter told me, he goes, you know what? He showed you the one thing. He's got another one of those at home. He's got like 100 Frisbees. And uh, yeah, I thought I was obsessed. Anyway, what else we got? It's rambling. Now. Cool. Um uh value of amrap strength of traditional straight sets oh so basically uh why would you do amrap type workouts versus just doing straight lifting and that's pretty much what you were just talking about earlier doing specific to the event you're training for who was the question from music m knight oh wow um why would you do so can i tell you i'm not even sure i don't even know uh, I, you know what I would call that is I refer to that as NFI. Okay. You know what that is? No. No freaking idea. Oh. No, well, I'm I think kidding, it's... I'm kidding. So AMRAP, um, as many reps as possible, uh, that yeah. is a competitive circumstance in CrossFit mm -hmm. as opposed to doing straight sets. So if you schedule yourself to do 10 repetitions, whatever maximum weight you could lift for those 10 repetitions that's basically what you're going to achieve if you set yourself up to do as many reps as possible you didn't stop at 10 there's probably going to be greater progression in your capacity to do that work over time but there's a cost associated with taxing yourself that heavily over every time you work out so i i think there's probably a lot of room for that type of work in training it's just a matter again of what it is you're trying to achieve well, and when I think of AMRAP, I think of high intensity because it's when I think of it, I think of it as like a CrossFit gym type of thing. You're racing someone, right, basically. Right. Well, so it's just so I, different. I don't even, it's not even lifting to me. Yeah, no. So if your training was always 10 rep max, you know, four sets of 10, four sets of 10, whatever, you're never going to beat somebody that, that was training with AMRAP, you know, because mm -hmm. he, he's just prepared for it. He's, he's conditioned himself for that kind of work. And so yeah. because you're, you have a self-imposed limitation in your training, it's it's going to be diff more difficult for you. Yeah. yeah, it's just so different than regular lifting. It's like, yeah, regular lifting, you're going short, super heavy, whereas AMRAP, you're probably not going to be going your max weights, but you're going to go as basically balls to the wall as hard as you can. It's usually going to be a 10, 15-minute workout, whatever, and you're going to be dead. So anyway. All right. And then uh, same guy said, or I'm assuming guy, Music M. Knight, said, how does one determine the number of rest days to take each week? It's really relative to your capacity to do the work to begin with. Um, I have I have people I coach that um, the amount of recovery they get is relative to the work they've done, and so as that changes, so does the recovery. So to to just blindly say this is how many days off you should have versus how many days you should work, it's very unique to the individual and the task and the training. So it's kind of a tough question to answer. But by the way, if I could just take a moment and say. I'm providing an opinion, okay? These are my opinions. I'm not suggesting you to the, that you need to believe me or you need to trust me or that I'm right and you're wrong. 
if you don't agree with what I'm telling you, I'm just sharing with you my experience and my opinion based on the history I have in the sport and the work I've done over the past 30 some odd years. So just want to get that out there because I know there's going to be some pushback from somebody somewhere and I just thought we'd just go ahead and let them know. Might as well. Cool. And I guess my my to stretch out his question a little bit is what what would you look for? Like if you have an athlete and trying to determine how many rest days, are there certain like telling signs that you would look for in that athlete's like performance to be like, oh, you need a rest day kind of thing? Well, I hope I don't get to that. Uh, I hope I don't get to a place where there's a marker that suggests, oops, we should probably rest. (laughs) You know, it should be more uh, proactive. You know, again, it takes time to figure somebody out and figure out whether they're, you know, they, they need more. But by the way, a lot of the athletes I work with, they don't want to rest. You know, they're so yeah. bent on doing work and they think work is progress, uh, where sometimes it's it's regression. So um, I, I I look at, by the way, with my Training Peaks account, there are stress indicators that I, that I have available to me to look at the amount of uh, training load that they've been taking on and how much stress they've been taking on. And then I can make decisions based on uh, uh, improvements or the loading pattern over the course of weeks or months. And then I could start thinking, you know what, maybe we need to back off for about a week or so. But beyond that, uh, it, it's opinionated. I have to listen to my athlete, you know, hear what they're saying to me, look at the reports they're providing me, and then you know, try, to, try to work it out from there. And then it also has to do with where they are time and space. I've got a couple of athletes I'm working with right now one just completed a 50 mile trail run and I've got one that's getting ready to do one and uh, you know leading up to these events how the training looked where we regressed um, how much of a, a, a taper we've we imposed leading into the event uh, this is all scientific stuff and it, it, a lot of it's experiential you have to you know based on the athlete make decisions not just like cookie cutter approach to it you know some people don't do well with a big taper some people really require a big taper. And so tapering and recovery is essentially the same thing in my mind. Again, tough question. Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, I think that's all the questions I have on my side, unless there are any extra ones that you got. No, I don't believe there are. I think we, we did nail a lot of them. We gotta give some stuff away. We, we, cool. we said we're gonna give away some Venga sleep aid. I don't know what they call the stuff, but. I, I, by the way, again, I, I want to point out that I'm not paid by Venga. Uh, I happen to use the product. I like it. I reached out to them. I said, look, I want to give some stuff away. Will you help me? They said yes. So um, that's what we're going to do. Now, we have six, six things to give away, and they're all the same thing. So it's basically a sleep aid. Nature's NyQuil, they call it. Yeah. Who do you like? Who do you want to give something to? I just get to choose one. I want you to choose three of them. Well, I want to choose Matt Worley. Okay, he's getting it. So now, he's now, one. By the way, if we if we choose you, we need your address. We need your address. Yeah, email. An email so that we can send get this stuff sent to you. We don't do it. We're, it's going to be drop shipped. I got to give the information to the manufacturer, and they'll send it out to you. So we don't get your information. You don't get a product. So Matt. Send it in, Matt. Cool. Uh, yeah. Other than him, I would say 
I mean, there's quite a few. Who do you think could benefit from it? You know more of these people than I would. I would send, I would send let's send something to Sarah just because I was picking on her. Cool. And uh, let's give something to Ben Pena because he actually had some interesting questions. It seems like he was engaged and, it, you know, kind of excited about all this. All um, right. How many we got? We got three now? Mm-hmm. It's up to you now. All right. Well, uh, let's give one to Jeff Budd then. That was the ultimate Frisbee question. All right. We can branch it into the ultimate Frisbee world. <laughs> right. like so there you go. Who else? Two more. Let's go on to other questions. Uh, How about my guy in Nashville? Nashville guy. All right. Alex Stevens. Yeah, let's give him something. Alex Stevens. Cool. And then we'll just randomly choose the last one. Miles <laughs> Keller. You know, I'm sitting here looking at Renee just posted his address. How <laughs> 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 many we, I mean, we got left to give away? Well, we, I, if you count the last one I just said, just but if not, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, Miles is in. Renee, you, you, you spoke too late. Sorry. You got brother. five seconds too late. Miles, you're lucky. Sorry, brother. Well, you know what? Let me tell you something, Renee. If we don't get a response from Miles, you're in. All right? And if anyone else doesn't get responses, I just get it? Yeah. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make sure you get some anyway. I'm going <laughs> to. Sweet. Um, okay, one more thing I want to do. I want to do this. Okay, this is my website, dshumorperformance.com. If you're interested in anything that we do, if you're interested in potentially attending a clinic or you're interested in some private work or you're interested in a gait analysis or a VO2 test or if you, uh, if you were looking to get a copy of Training the Dark Side, um, all of this can be found by going to dshumorperformance.com. So, um, I, I mean, it would be, be wrong for me not to shamelessly plug my business. I have dedicated quite a lot of time today. And let's do this. This is Princess Leia. This is how you find her uh, on Instagram. And by the way, Princess Leia is a badass. In case you didn't know, she's a badass. That's why I have her here. Aside from her being prettier than me, you know, and this eye candy, you got to put up with me, you get to look at her, right? So uh, there's that. And what are you, any parting words, thoughts, processes, Leah? Um, not really. Hey, if we're plugging, why not plug a uh, OPP a little bit? Oh yes, okay. we're here. Obstacle Performance Project. So this is OPP. This is the Obstacle Performance Project. This is a weekly group training program that's hosted on Facebook, and uh, you can find registration on my website if you choose. And there you go. One more thing, the the most obvious thing that we should plug is the fact that you, whether you like it or not, are now the official co-host of the Natural Running Network. And those have not been there, naturalrunningnetwork.com, naturalrunningnetwork.com is the website for the podcast. I started doing a podcast nearly eight years ago and ran podcasts every week for a good solid five, six years without miss. I just got tired of it, you know, I got busy, got tired, got a little remiss, so 
We're back. Leah's responsibility is to keep me on point, make sure that we get this thing out there for you guys. If you like what we're doing, check it out. And also the uh, YouTube channel, good place to go. If you're hearing it but you're not seeing it, go to Richard Diaz. I know there's another Richard Diaz. I have to get him killed or something. I don't know. He's uh, There's a Richard Diaz beside me on YouTube. And I don't, I don't even know what he's schlepping. It's some stupid thing. I don't know what it is. No relation. Something stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, and we'll probably do more Q&As in the future, too. So keep thinking of your questions and listen to the podcast, come up with stuff, and shoot it our way. Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo.